0: U of I's COVID test gets emergency FDA approval. And it's time for our weekly check-in with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, for a look at this week in local housing market news.
1: Yeah, I think what what a lot of these real estate agents told me and, and what really sort of lines up with what we've all experienced in our own lives is that what people seem to be fleeing is not the city necessarily, but housing that worked for me prior to the pandemic and no longer does. I need more space.
0: I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Thursday, August 20th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash DailyGist. Member FDIC.
1: This is the Crane's Daily Gist
0: with Amy Goose. All right, it's Thursday, and so that means it's time for our weekly check-in with Dennis Rodkin, Crane's residential real estate reporter. Hello, Dennis. As ever, we have so many things to talk about. Where should we start today?
1: Oh, why don't we go to the suburbs first, Amy?
0: Let's go to the suburbs, because I feel like you and I have like tiptoed up to this topic several times over the last couple of months. And that is like, well, well, what's happening in the city? Are people leaving or not? We've kind of left it as a wait and see. Although last week I felt like there was a little bit of data we could talk about. But what is the latest in terms of people potentially leaving the city and heading to the burbs?
1: Well, you know what I find really interesting is that there are so many people who will state as fact. People are leaving the city. That's not only in Chicago, uh, but of course, I talk to more people in Chicago than in other cities. And it's sort of remarkable to me how many people will say, oh, everybody's leaving the city now. Um, So I have several times gone out in search of the data. And every time the data says, you know, they're not. Um, They're really not leaving the city. We may find uh, over the course of time, over the course of multiple years, that uh, let's just say... Wicker Park, Bucktown, all those places start to really uh, wither, and Lake Forest, Glencoe, Winnetka start to boom. Uh, But it would take quite a while. Uh, A real estate economist said to me today, for an unrelated or for a related story, that the housing choices people make don't really turn on a dime, um, because I really this pandemic may have speeded some people up. But I really have to sort of determine where my life is going and get rid of the housing I have, whether live out my lease or sell the home I have, that sort of thing. So I, I still think it's unlikely that we're going to see a huge stampede. Where people are seeing, where the data shows stampedes is in New York and San Francisco, the two uh, densest and most expensive markets in America, uh, where it's easier for people to, or, or where it has has been. Um, sufficient for people to say, I got to get out of here. And as you probably know, there are tens of thousands of empty apartments now in New York. Uh, but the data isn't showing yet that people are forsaking Chicago in big numbers.
0: In the story that you wrote about this topic, it seemed like perhaps there was a a sense from realtors that things were starting to sell a little faster in the burbs.
1: Yeah, I think what, what a lot of these real estate agents told me and, and what really sort of lines up with what we've all experienced in our own lives is that what people seem to be fleeing is not the city necessarily, but housing that worked for me prior to the pandemic and no longer does. I need more space. When the pandemic first hit, uh, I thought it would be temporary. I thought I'd be going back to work. My kids would be going back to school, whatever it was, over the course of you know a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Now it's been quite a long time. And we don't see when things will go back to normal, if they ever will. So I'm starting to realize I need, let's just say uh, we're a married couple, we need two at home offices because we both are working at home and may be doing that for a very long time and can't work on top of each other. We need a dedicated place for the kids to uh, have a school room or, or do their school activities. So the space, and we also may not have had a backyard because our kids could play in the park and parks have been closed, that sort of thing. So what we're seeing, what a lot of people are telling me, and what I I wrote about in this story, is this idea that what people are running away from is housing that doesn't work for them anymore into housing that does. That is often, that does work in their new lives. That's often in the suburbs, because I may want a yard, I may need more bedrooms than uh, I can afford in a hot city neighborhood, and I can find a suburb where they're more affordable, Um, So what we're finding is a lot of houses are selling really fast, especially if they have a pool, if they have a big yard, um, and if they're in some of these suburbs that you can get back into the city easily from, Evanston, Oak Park, the places that have have real strong public transit and real uh, close connections to the city. Uh, And so, again, this sort of lines up with what we – I mean, everybody in their own life during this pandemic has had to say – oh, gee, I used to go to the office. Now all that stuff is piled here on this dresser I've been using as a desk uh, since March. What can I do about that? And so what we're seeing is those who have the money and the flexibility may be buying a larger home or a a different configuration of home than used to work for them.
0: I feel very seen by that paperwork piling up on the dresser comment.
1: (laughs) maybe we should just say that we are recording this from different locations i have no idea what your home office looks like
0: you know our our home life and our work life have just blurred in a way that they they didn't previously and so stuff comes with that
1: maybe i had you know one of us had an office and it was really just sort of the place to pay bills and you know play computer poker or whatever it was it wasn't really set up as an office and when i really started to load it up with the technology. And then my spouse or partner also needed a lot of technology, and we, we need rooms. One of the things that's going on in my household is we both have jobs where we talk on the phone a lot. So we have to be as far from each other in the house as we can because I don't want to hear her conversation. She doesn't want to hear mine. Um, and so what we could really use right now is a new house that's like a long, skinny bar where one office is 45 feet down the hall from the other office. These are the kinds of things we're all thinking about right now.
0: The conference call house. That's what you need. Yeah, exactly. There you go. All right. Well, speaking of houses, there's a couple of them I want to talk about with you because there are some really, really beautiful ones. This first one is uh, by architect Edward Humrick that is really interesting. It's in Riverwoods. We've talked about a lot of houses in Riverwoods, and it's always this theme of kind of bringing the outside in and where you can really feel the outdoors. And I think this is another one of those houses.
1: This is Yeah, and I think all the, every time we've talked about Riverwoods, probably, it has been a Humrick house. Riverwoods is an interesting place. For people who don't know, it's sort of west of Deerfield, uh, as, and it was in the 40s, 50s. It was land that was owned by the Ryerson family, the, the steel magnets, um, and one member of the family wanted to develop, really had an idea to develop a suburb that would be different from a lot of suburbs, really wanted to preserve as much of the nature as possible and just sort of split the houses in here and there and commissioned an architect who had a similar concept. Uh, i sorry, I should say that was Ed Ryerson. The architect is Edward Humrick. Um, Ed Ryerson uh, tapped Edward Humrick to design houses that fit in among the trees, the streams, the river. Um, you know, it's called Riverwoods because it has a river and woods. Uh, and the idea was for these houses to fit right in. It's post-war. It's 50s and early 60s, and a lot of this modernism is going on, especially in Chicago, as you and I have discussed, or in the Chicago area. And Humrick had done some houses like this, but in Riverwoods, over the course of about a decade and a half, he designed more than 40 of them. There were at least 40. Uh, And they're, yeah, they, they... as you said, you know, they sort of get right into their setting often. This one in particular is, uh, has walls of glass, essentially, um, so that what the seller told me is you don't even feel like you're living inside. You feel like you're living outside because there's so much glass around and the natural setting comes so close to that glass that it's always right there. You see the snow falling, you see the wind rustling through the leaves. Um, they're pretty cool houses, and they have been – the reason we've been talking about them, uh, we've probably talked about them three different times in 2019 when houses sold in two weeks or less. Humrick houses sold in two weeks or less. Uh, now, this one has come on the market. I haven't seen any come on the market in the interim, but this one came on the market today, and I think what we'll have to watch for is does this sell as fast as those did?
0: and i think it's so interesting that this house has not been on the market since 1984 i mean we've we see sometimes houses that change hands a lot and then sometimes we right. s- we see these that that are a little more i don't know like sculptural right when they when they have yeah. this this pedigree of an architect na- ar- architect's name attached to it they it seems like people kind of hang on to them for a lot longer
1: well you know what's interesting about this one so it was built in 1964 and there were apparently two owners before this man bought it in 1984. Um, and he, it, at that time, you know, a house that's 20 years old, it's kind of out of style. Um, it, it probably didn't look as sort of exciting at that time as it does now, because it just looked, it would have looked old. It would have looked like, yeah, we're not, we're not building those things now in 1984. He knew nothing of Humrick. He knew nothing of modernism. He was a hiker. He, he used to hike, especially in Ryerson Woods, which is a forest preserve also on Ryerson land. Um, and so he wanted sort of a, a place like the, a house like the place he hiked in. Um, the, the point is the modernism thing didn't mean a thing to him. But then once he moved in and started to understand how why this house was designed the way it was and, and how it really sort of complemented this setting that he liked, he became a fan of, of Humrick and then held on to the house for 26 years until uh, he and his wife just recently retired to Arizona, where they also hike, um, and so is now ready to let go of this really sharp house.
0: Mm, well, we'll see how long it takes before it finds a new a new host. I may be telling you next week on the podcast, hey, guess
1: what? That one's under contract.
0: Yeah, right. I, I wouldn't doubt it. I feel like especially this style gets snapped up so quickly.
1: Yeah, and a good price, by the way, 589000 on on a little over two acres. Um, this is. I think it's quite likely that we'll be talking about it next week, or if not, the, the next week, as having gone under contract.
0: All right. Well, another house, speaking of, of houses that really embrace the outdoor space around them and from a noted, uh, an, another noted architect, that is a place in Bannockburn. Tell me about this one.
1: So this is a much newer house. The, the other one was built in uh, 1964. This was built in 2010. I guess it was completed actually in 2012 on five and a half acres. The architect is Dirk Dennison. Dirk Dennison has done a lot of work. Uh, well, he's done a lot of work all over the country, but in the, he's, he's based in Chicago and his work is very city based. Um, he's done restaurants and, and very high, high end restaurants, high end homes. Um, so these people, these, uh, Glenn and Wendy Miller, when they bought five and a half acres in Bannockburn, they bring this very city architect out to, their country setting and have him build this wonderful space they so they like humrick they wanted to really enjoy their natural setting it had been sort of worn down it had been grazed by horses that kind of stuff but they're going to create new prairies and plant a lot of trees and they want to be able to enjoy that they want that humrick type modernist type feeling where you're looking out where the outdoors is coming in and you're looking out and that sort of thing um, and this house is so interesting because um, I was trying to decide whether, from the air, it would look like a star because it's got all these angles. All these rooms go out in different directions. Many of them have peaks. The idea being that you know they reach out toward the natural setting. Um, there really are very few ninety-degree angles in this house. So I said to the um, to the owner, Glenn Miller, uh, who's not a band leader, uh, that. I said, so what does this look like from the sky? Would this be a star shape? He said, no. You know, if you took a drone up over this house, it would look like a geometry lesson because there are so many shapes. Uh, and all that then moves inside the house as well. There are angled ceilings and pointed walls. It's it's pretty interesting. It's it's. Um, I, I might get in trouble if I say this, but it's sort of Frank Geary-like. If people could picture a Frank Geary house like the... Um, the Prisker Pavilion in Millennium Park. I don't want to say that Dirk Jennison is, is Frank Geary is borrowing from Frank Geary, but that might help people imagine what the house looks like.
0: Yeah. Because like there is, there is a photo on the story of the roof and you can tell it's kind of a lot of different angles. It looks a bit folded, Like origami in the way that that Frank Gehry does with his work, too. So it's a really really neat house. I mean, you and I look at so many houses together. You certainly look at many more than I do. But this is a a, a very unique one. Like, um, it's not often that we see a house this modern, but also that unique, without it being um, kind of... I don't, I'm Not empty in a bad way, but just like kind of this clean, clear, white space. But this is not yeah. that. It's like really quite warm and inviting, this house.
1: It is. there. Well, so uh, one of the ways that they accomplished that is, first of all, there are these enormous number of those windows because, you know, the idea is to see the prairies and to see the hawks catching um, bowls and that sort of thing, to really enjoy the outdoors. But the other thing is that where there are solid walls, they're nearly all covered with a wood veneer. So it's not like a white plaster wall. It's warm like, you know, like a tree trunk. It's it's made of wood. And that, I think, is one of the things that accomplishes what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, it's a really beautiful house. And even that that kind of origami folded uh, motif is in the ceiling. There's one photo of, I'm not sure why they have three dining room tables, but they do. And
1: <laughs> I think there's a reason for that this So these were these people were grandparents when they commissioned the house, and they did a a lot of what they did was to uh, entertain the family. So there's this large open living space that might be where grandkids are bombing around, or where at family holidays you have a big dining set up. So rather than rather than show the room as a big empty space, uh, which it might be sometimes. They furnished it as they would for a holiday so that it didn't look like a big empty room. So yeah, there are three dining room tables in the room.
0: Or look, you know what? Sometimes it's kind of a pain to set up a kid's table. So no judgment if they keep that up all year. That's okay with me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but in that picture, you can see the ceiling above it is kind of, it's got all these folds and all these angles. This is a really interesting house.
1: It is. Um, uh, We haven't said yet, but it's it's $7.5 million. And, you know, for $7.5 million, you should expect to get something pretty great. This one is, you mentioned the word unique. One of the things the seller, Glenn Miller, mentioned to me is that in their contract with Dirk Dennison, Dennison does all sorts of really interesting shapes. If you were to look at his website, you'd see lots of other houses or and, and structures that have really unusual shapes. But their contract specifically says he can't build another one that looks like this. Um, So if this was an idea he wanted to then play with in other forms and other buildings, he's barred from that contractually, which is just one of those things that makes makes you sure that your house isn't um, that somebody isn't going to say, oh, yeah, I saw a house just like that a couple miles away in in Glencoe.
0: Another topic I want to talk about, we've uh, well, another one that we've talked about many times, and that is about the uh, the coach houses or the. What you call them accessory dwelling units? But I think also we right. call them Fonzie houses many times. Fonzie apartments. Fonzie,
1: Fonzie flats, yeah. <laughs> and one of the one of the terms that is finally coming along is second houses. Uh, that's a historical term in Chicago because there were there were a lot of buildings. There were a lot of times where people built a house on their lot and a second house. But that's one of the ways um, that, that one of the terms people are using for coach houses now.
0: We've talked about like all the regulatory stuff going on with them, but uh, as they may be allowed soon, there are firms that you've been talking with that are ready to build them and and go there and and build them up in spaces as they would be allowed to be built. That's a mouthful. Yeah.
1: We may in September uh, hear from the city council that for the first time since 1957, uh, uh, coach houses are legal in Chicago. Um, If they allow ADUs, accessory dwelling units. It wouldn't only be coach houses. It would also be like a, an apartment in your attic or an apartment in your basement. But obviously, that's, the look of that is pretty much going to be dictated by the pre-existing building and what you're finishing out. But these firms are looking at what would happen if people want to build coach houses. If I have you know, the standard Danley garage on the alley in, in behind my Chicago house, basic footprint of a two-car garage, Uh, and if you look down a lot of Chicago alleys, you can see, you know, 20 of them running down the alley. If I want to replace that with uh, something that has a second story for an apartment, what would it look like? What would it cost? How can these be done around the city? BKL, an architecture firm, and Focus, a development firm, got together to look at what would these look like, what would they cost, and where could they be built? and um, they came up with sort of a a contemporary-looking two-story building. If you imagine uh, a two-car garage or actually something just a little bit bigger than the footprint of a two-car garage, and you put a second story on that, uh, the the little bit bigger allows for you still to have a two-car garage, but some entry up to that second floor, whether it's an indoor or outdoor staircase, and they looked these over. Another firm is looking at it as well, and It looks as if you'd probably build it for the uh, $125,000 to $150,000 range in their study. Another group was looking at up to about $200,000. But this bkl focus program, they looked at if you then were able to rent that two-bedroom apartment, what makes it cost-effective? And they found that uh, with the plans they drew up, if we were building these throughout the city, people would be profiting to the tune of about $2,000 a year. So you've spent, you've taken out a loan or in some other way spent about one hundred twenty-five, dollars $150,000 to build it, but it is returning to you every year with rent uh, $2,000. The rent is that much more per year than your service on the loan. That's pretty darn good, really. Um, if you can qualify for a $150,000 loan or have that money available, It would actually be able, you would be able to provide a piece of affordable housing in your neighborhood, either for a family member, a friend, or a complete stranger, and be turning a profit.
0: Well, that's going to be a story to watch. And we will, of course, keep turning to you for the latest and and see how that shakes out. But for now, what do you have, what stories do you have coming up in the week ahead?
1: Well, you know, one that came out today uh, is about the effort to get Emmett Till home in West Woodlawn Landmark. This has happened before. There's been an effort before to get it landmarked. There's a little bit more urgency now for a couple of reasons. Uh, That's probably all I should say, because I think you and I are trying to arrange a, a larger discussion of this next week.
0: All right. Well, until next week, thanks so much, Dennis. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks, David. Coming up, we work scraps to Fulton Market leases, marking the first time the co working giant has terminated a previously announced Chicago lease. We'll talk about that and more after this. Businesses looking for help in navigating the COVID-19 crisis should check out Small Business Lifeline, a new weekly podcast from Cranes. Every Thursday, the free Small Business Lifeline will offer expert advice and information on accessing needed resources during the crisis. Listen to Small Business Lifeline at chicagobusiness.com slash SBL. Governor Pritzker announced Wednesday during a press conference updating the latest developments in the state's pandemic response that the FDA has granted emergency use authorization of the saliva-based COVID-19 test developed and now in use at the University of Illinois. U of I Chancellor Robert J. Jones said the test was developed in a matter of a few months by researchers in Urbana-Champaign as a way to quickly test the roughly 60,000 returning faculty, staff and students twice a week. On Monday, the university tested 10,000 people at the school, representing 1.3% of all tests in the nation that day, he said. And the testing will now be made more broadly available by a new organization called Shield T3, a company governed by a nine-member board of managers chosen by the U of I board of trustees. And all this comes after Yale received an emergency use authorization from the FDA last week for its coronavirus saliva test, which is used by the NBA. Piggybacking on that, U of I at Urbana-Champaign conducted a bridge study comparing its test with Yale's, and the results showed that Illinois' test was even more sensitive, allowing it to operate under the umbrella of the FDA's approval. And this news comes the same day that Illinois reported nearly 2,300 new coronavirus cases, which is the highest since May 24th, as well as 25 virus deaths amid a record 50,299 tests. While the state's overall seven-day rolling positivity rate is at 4.4 percent, the Metro East region near St. Louis has spiked to 9.4 percent. And many of the state's other regions are also seeing cases rise. Governor Pritzker said that Cheaper and faster tests that require fewer raw materials, such as the one U of I has developed, can help slow the spread of the pandemic. The leaders of the city's public transportation agencies are warning that steep service cuts and or fare hikes may well be on the way if Washington does not give more help in dealing with the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. In a joint statement, the transit chiefs said they will, quote, face a significant revenue shortfall in 2021 without a new round of aid comparable to the 1400000000 billion they've already received. And that statement didn't say what would happen without that help, but Regional Transportation Authority Executive Director, Leanne Redden, one of the signers of the statement, said in an interview that without that kind of help, there's not a lot we can do besides cut service and raise fares. Other signers included the CTA president, Metra CEO, and PACE executive director. All of the agencies have seen their rider usage drop by two-thirds or more, with sales tax funds that subsidize operations also down, though not quite as much. The agencies have been able to absorb that without mass layoffs or service cuts because of $1.4 billion from the first federal COVID relief bill. But with this year's revenue deficit running an estimated $900 million, the federal funds will run out in early 2021, according to All of the agencies are taking unprecedented steps to deal with the pandemic and their various vehicles, quote, have never been cleaner, the statement says, continuing by saying that the agencies continue to provide safe, reliable trips to meet dramatically shifting customer needs. And it also adds, quote, business leaders recognize that transit will be essential for economic recovery, but significant financial challenges mean this can't be taken for granted. Overall, transit agencies around the country are looking for $32 billion in a new federal relief bill, up from $25 billion in the first one. Former Democratic Governor Pat Quinn joined community activists in calling on Governor J.B. Pritzker and Mayor Lori Lightfoot to block next year's planned closure of Mercy Hospital and Medical Center on the near south side. We want Mercy Hospital to be here today and be here forever, said Quinn, who was born at the hospital and who was joined by other Chicago Democrats, including Congressman Danny Davis, State Senator Maddie Hunter, State Rep. Teresa Ma, and State Rep. Lamont Robinson. Mercy, which is owned by Catholic giant Trinity Health, announced its plans to close in the first half of 2021 after a proposal to merge the safety net with three other financially struggling Chicago hospitals fell apart in Springfield. And critics say the closure means about three 300 fewer hospital beds on Chicago's south side, impacting residents who are already disproportionately affected by COVID-19. In a July 29th letter to the Illinois Health Facilities and Services Review Board, Mercy officials said they are developing plans for a care center that would provide diagnostics and imaging, urgent care, and coordination of health care providers and community services. A spokesperson for Mayor Lightfoot's office said the city is, quote, committed to continuing Mercy Hospital's legacy of promoting health equity for all residents throughout Chicago. Ago. Mercy called on city leaders to rethink how health care is delivered on the south side. A spokesperson saying in an email to Cranes, quote, the current approach to health care on the south side today is causing rising disparities in outcomes of health that need to be addressed with preventative care. Continuing, we encourage leaders across the city and state to take the bold steps necessary not just to maintain the status quo that is perpetuating these disparities, but to do what is needed to truly transform the system so that it works for the patients we serve. Coworking giant WeWork has called off plans to open two new locations in the Fulton Market District as the embattled Coworking Giant's leaders retool its strategy. The New York-based company confirmed that it recently bought out two leases totaling 110,000 square feet that it had signed last year, both on West Fulton Street, where it planned to occupy most of two redeveloped buildings. The breakup with the building's owners, which is a joint venture of Chicago developer Domus Group and Northbrook-based Barnett Capital, marks the first time WeWork has terminated a Chicago lease it had previously announced. And the move highlights its pivot from a rapid expansion over the past few years that made them one of the largest users of office space in the city. WeWork's leasing approach has changed under new CEO Sandeep Mathrani, who took the wheel in February after WeWork botched an attempt to go public late last year and then ousted co-founder Adam Newman from his role as chief executive. A WeWork spokesperson said in a statement that the company and the Domus Group Barnett Capital Venture quote mutually agreed not to move forward with the planned WeWork locations, but that WeWork remains committed to the City of Chicago, and continued by saying that they remain committed to the City of Chicago and look forward forward to maintaining a presence throughout existing locations in the city. Fueled by small businesses and corporate giants alike gravitating to flexible office space that they could lease by the month, downtown Chicago had more than 3.2 million square feet of co-working space at the end of 2019, which is about 45 percent more than it had the year before. That, according to brokerage Newmark Knight Frank. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Dennis Rodkin. And be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.